We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Before we begin, I would like to give a special mention and thanks to some wonderful people without whom today's episode would never have happened. First, a shout out to crime writer Jed Ayers for having such an engaging and rich conversation with me about TV's Terriers earlier in the season. Next, my gratitude to Ryan Johnson and Karina Longworth, who kindly put our guest in touch with me. And an extra special thank you as well to the brilliant historian Farron Smith Nemi for providing me with so much rich academic and vintage research on director Leo McCary. You can find Jed at his blog, Hard Boiled Wonderland. Ryan Johnson's movies are available for rent and purchase everywhere, and Knives Out 2 is coming. Karina Longworth just launched a brand new season of You Must Remember This on Erotic 80s, and she'll be joining me on the podcast soon. And Baron Smith Nemi's writing is available a variety of places. And she's also all over the Criterion channel, sharing her valuable interviews and insights. Thank you so much to all. Today, it's a true honor to welcome a very special guest that I recently made the acquaintance of following our episode dedicated to FX's superb 2010 series, Terriers. He's the first of two individuals related to the show whom you'll hear this season. Series star Donald Logue is also forthcoming. But first up, we have the show's creator and executive producer, along with the writer and director of two episodes, it's the great Ted Griffin, a terrific screenwriter whose credits include Ravenous, Ocean's Eleven, and Match Sick Men, which he co-wrote with Nicholas Griffin. Additionally, he is the producer of such Oscar-nominated films as Up in the Air and The Wolf of Wall Street, as well as one of my pandemic TV favorites, the Emmy-nominated Netflix series Pretend It's a City working alongside Martin Scorsese on some of the titles mentioned before. Ted also wrote two Scorsese-directed advertisements, the Clio award-winning The Key to Reserva and Street of Dreams. And when I asked him for a short bio to use for this intro, Ted included the witty closing lines of, 
He's also acted a few times, but the less said about that, the better. He lives with his much more talented wife and child in New York City. But as you can tell, there's plenty of talent in the household to go around. So, Ted, I want to thank you so much for being here. How are you doing and how is spring treating you so far? Thank you for that nice introduction. I assume their quotes around great and witty. Um, <laughs> everything is fine here. We've had, as pen- pandemics go, uh, a, a pretty painless one, knock on wood. It's been a good pandemic. Uh, we're, we may be at war with Russia, uh, but otherwise, uh, no major complaints. <laughs> I am glad to hear it. Yeah, there's always something. But what have you been up to lately? Is there anything you're working on or recently completed that you're able to tell us about? Uh, besides my tan, um, <laughs> spoiled, I, the last thing I think I had out to promote was Pretend as a City, uh, okay. which, uh, I loved. Which, which garnered an Emmy nomination, which means now I'm, I, I can uh, introduce myself as Emmy losing Ted Griffin, uh, okay. as opposed to Emmy eligible Ted Griffin, which is... Uh, that was your used, previous, you had business On Terriers, we used, to, uh, we used to introduce Terriers as the Emmy eligible uh terriers thank you again by the way for those 90 minutes of sheer joy listening about that uh to everything you said about that show uh that was very special for all of us and the least i could do to repay you was come on here and share my very valuable valuable insights well thank Uh, you and thanks for listening it's always you know you try not to think about that when you're creating the episode but it was such an honor what a wonderful series yeah um that's sort of why I chose t- uh, today's subject because uh, he's dead. Um, I, I yeah. we, we, we started talking about, okay, what can we do an episode about? And I thought I kind of ran through some thoughts. I thought, eh, but I don't want like that person's out there. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't you can't say, talk shit about him. Then yeah, no, you're going to uh, hear McCary. Says, well, uh, I mean, I'd love to talk about Scorsese and, and say, oh, there's one movie of his I don't like. And, but I, I, I yeah. can't. Uh, <laughs> Okay, off air, you got to tell me. No, I'm just kidding. But Terriers, so you, Jed Ayers, and I have exchanged some emails about our Watch With Jen episode on that outstanding series. And I know we have plenty to talk about today with Leo McCary, who is very much dead, as we established. But before we begin, for all the fans who are out there listening, what can you tell us about what that experience was like and also the show's ongoing legacy as a cult favorite? It was the best creative experience I've had. It was uh, at times fairly crazy because it was the first time I'd really done a TV show and it's uh, quite often like running through a tunnel in front of a train and you just need to get, (laughs) like you're always just about to get creamed um, keeping up. So uh, especially when I think we started the finale with about five pages of script written to wrap up a season long mystery uh, and which we were still kind yes. of. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, uh, uh, but the, uh, no finer collaborators than Donal and Mikey and everybody in the cast and crew. Uh, and the great thing about um, television, which is, is that it really by necessity can't be a, uh, an auteur art form. Uh, I'm True. sorry. It is like it's like an army. There are too many things going on. Um, And uh, and I guess I wanted to sort of stress that before we have a conversation about an auteur um, and and which we'll talk a little bit about. But um, when we were canceled, it was a bummer because uh, I thought there there were 
there was more to do with those characters and more fun to have, have with them. But Definitely. it was also really like a relationship with about 15 people that was oh. just in its prime. And, and we had to go uh, our own ways. Not that we haven't stayed in touch, but after a while, uh, it's tough to say, oh, wasn't that great 12 years ago? Um, yeah, that is hard. When I had Chris Cantwell on and he was talking about Halt and Catch Fire, he said he still has, you know, the group text on his phone and he calls them halters and we keep in touch. And so, yeah, that would be really hard to get really, really tight with people as you would in these, you know, intense experiences where you're all working on a creative endeavor and then have that happen. That's, I'm mad that it was canceled, even though it was 12 years ago, but, you know, let's figure out a way to bring it back is what I'm thinking. But yeah. Uh, in this case, it was better to have loved and lost. I've, okay. I've had I've had I've had worse heartbreaks than that cancellation, but uh, and, <laughs> and it does mean a lot that you guys did the podcast that it gets remembered. Yeah. Where it, it is some sort of validation of uh, that it had that it stuck to some degree. Um, yes, and it ended very well. Like it, it is a full ending, mm-hmm. and you feel you know good about it. It didn't leave you on a cliffhanger or anything. It was really well done. Um, I'm gonna leave it there. Okay. Yes. On, on that note. Yes. <laughs> I'm not well, going to contradict you. Okay. Well, when we were kicking around theme ideas for today's episode, I was really excited by your suggestion of filmmaker Leo McCary. Towards the end of last season, I had a ball discussing actor Charles Lawton in Leo McCary's hilarious, now largely forgotten 1935 comedy Ruggles of Red Gap with actor James Urbaniak. And as we eased into the discussion, we both bonded over us becoming fans of McCary's work in college. Needless to say, I think this episode today is a great way to continue paying tribute to that. After graduating from the University of Southern California Law School, he quit the field once he discovered his client in an alimony case had beaten his wife and terrified his two children. Informing the judge that his client was a rat McCary knew that he did not want to risk defending such people and decided to go to Hollywood to tell stories instead. A writer-director who, as he explained to uh, Cahiers de Cinema, first got his start working as an, an apprentice or a script girl and person who kept the gin water down for Todd Browning on The Virgin of Stambul before he became a prop man, gag man, and AD on Outside the Law with Lon Chaney. He then moved up the ladder and began to direct solo. And although McCary's name seems mostly synonymous with comedy, a few of the works we'll be taking a closer look at either showcase or largely incorporate his more serious, romantic, and or religious side. Obviously, we will dive deeper into our chosen films of Duck Soup, Make Way for Tomorrow, The Awful Truth, Love Affair, and Going My Way one by one in just a moment. But before we do that, I would love to know your own history with McCary and why you found him so compelling to talk about for the show. I think I came a little late to Leo McCary. I was raised a cinephile uh, by my father mostly, but also my mother was the daughter of Hollywood folk. Uh, My grandfather was a director named William A. Sider, who was a contemporary of McCary's and, oh, wow. uh, and there's, uh, and my grandmother's an actress um, and uh, a film actress who, uh, which we'll, I'll, I'll sort of get named Marion Nixon and I'll, I'll get to her. But, um, 
and uh, my grandfather died before I was born. Um, and how do I say this politely? Uh, he's a, you know, he's a B minus McCary. Uh, he, he was far more prolific than McCary made like a hundred plus movies, but uh, only one of them sort of uh, sure. kind of touches the hem of his garment, which is of all things, a Laurel and Hardy movie called Sons of the Desert. And as we'll oh, wow. discuss, yes. we'll discuss Leo McCary created or, or thought, Hey, Laurel stand next to Hardy. Yep. Uh, he's the guy who's credited for putting those two guys together. Um, so there are all sorts of, uh, there are weird connections and I have no idea if they knew each other, but there are weird connections between my family history and McCary, which I discovered mostly through researching him. The reason why I like him, um, is because being uh, growing up a cinephile, I was sort of introduced, uh, first to Capra, Sturgis, Lubitsch, and sort of, uh, it's a later generation is, uh, wilder, um and but McCary never had that sort of name recognition no. and mm-hmm. uh and the reason why I wanted to do this podcast and talk about him was because I think he kind of he should be on their level um and yeah. if I, I would rank him above a couple of those names mm-hmm. not that he wasn't I think celebrated in his time he won three Oscars and the, the, uh, it's reported that he was the highest earning American in 1944 and 45 yes. thanks to the one-two punch of going my way in Bells of St. Mary's although as somebody said that was when, it, when you were paying 91% in taxes so uh, so <laughs> ironing he didn't get to keep it um, anyway so that's why I want to talk to him because I think there's not enough uh, sort of written about him um Bogdanovich is inclu- includes him in Who the Devil Made It, but he's just not uh, he's not the brand name that Lubitsch, Sturgis, and Capra are, and I think uh, I think he deserves to be. I agree with you there. And when you mentioned Capra and Lubitsch, when I was doing research in the James Harvey book Romantic Comedy, he cited a Saturday Evening Post uh, article from '46 calling it the McCary stamp on a picture has been described as being somewhere between the Capra and the Lubitsch touch. So he was kind of celebrated in his time, but it's a shame that, you know, it just, it didn't continue. And so I think also some of that might be with his later career and some of his um, stances he took, but yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, he's, uh, you know, I guess we'll get to his later days uh, in later days, but um, uh, he, 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 uh, yeah, he's, I mean, I think Capra was reasonably conservative. Oh yeah, of course. I, uh, certainly, Demille, uh, there, there, and Ford. Um, but just to get it out of the way, yeah, McCary, I think, cooperated with Huack uh, gladly. He didn't name names. Yes. Um, I, I also think he was probably well into his cups in the last two decades. I, I think yeah, he got, unfortunately. He got from a, or there was a, there was a, a this is your life. Uh, live television broadcast about Stan Laurel and McCary showed up just three oh. sheets. Um, and if you look at some of the pictures of him, you can see, oh, there's there's the booze weight hanging out there. Mm. Um, and his and his the last twenty years of uh, his films, uh, some of which I've dipped into, which we don't have to talk about, certainly <laughs> reflect um, the wear and tear of uh, yeah, uh, the Irish unfortunately. Trigger. Um, but let's get to that. 
uh, in due time. Um, he starts yes. out making a lot of comedies, and um, I'm trying to think. There, there were uh, there was another template for like people who start off doing sort of straight comedy, and then Bron besides Woody Allen, who's you know dicey to talk about right now, <laughs> or the uh, um, or the Zuckers uh, who yeah, start off playing, and then. Sure. Um, and not to say that Green Book is uh, up there with uh, Make Way for Tomorrow, but, you know, um, who, who, so I guess maybe Jim Brooks. Uh, starting uh, off I love his movies. Yeah. In sitcom and then sort of, because um, Jim Brooks, I think, is not, not a, you know, a direct line to McCary, but there is something. What I like about McCary, cutting straight to it, is that the characters are not only working quite often at the top of their intelligence, which is true of a lot of great comedies, but also uh, I would say at the top of their humanity in which most people are trying to do right or trying to do good. And there there aren't sort of uh, empty antagonists. Uh, There's no Mr. Potter in uh, uh, in a Leo McCary movie, just the, you know, the person who wants everything, <laughs> what's the worst for everyone else and the best for him. Uh, and that's why I think take all, taking his, most of his movies as a group, the, uh, they're, they're, it's not, they're, they're good company. Like the characters are, are people I, I like, and that's probably true of Jim Brooks's best work. Um, uh, sorry, I wrote down like notes and then I, but now I'm afraid I'll just start like reading like I used to in a, like an oral presentation at school. And then <laughs> in 1938. Hey, that's what I do usually in my intros. Yeah, no, you're fine. Um, but no, he is, uh, Charles Lawton is somebody who was very famous for like never praising his directors, but the exception <laughs> was Leo McCary. He called him the greatest comedy mind now living. And of course there is, you've mentioned his humanity, the really famous John Renoir quote yep. on McCary is he understands people better than anyone in Hollywood. And he does, he, he finds the beauty in behavior, sometimes bad behavior, good behavior reactions is kind of a thing he specializes in and yeah, I can't wait to get into it. So Having directed over a hundred shorts with Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy, a pair that, as Ted pointed out, he himself had first introduced in an era where the director, McCary later said, wasn't officially often credited. But by the 1930s, his skills and reputation as a comedy veteran and tastemaker were in high demand. Knowing this, he was the one and only choice of the Marx Brothers when it came time to selecting someone to helm duck soup. Not wanting to work with the quartet, however, who he felt were completely mad, McCary flatly refused, which led the Marxes to fight with Paramount, break their contract, and leave. Only then, finding it safe to renew his own contract at the studio, McCary did so, but was in for quite a shock when shortly thereafter, the Marx Brothers returned, and he was assigned to direct the 1933 pre-code comedy, After All. Yet despite his many, many, many complaints about the experience, including how very hard it was to get them all together at the same time, since as he told Kahir to cinema, one was always missing the resulting political satire about Groucho's newly installed president of the fictional country of Fredonia remains one of the funniest films that both the Marx Brothers as well as McCary ever made. 
the last Marx movie to co-star Zeppo, who per usual is kind of used as an afterthought. There is some tremendously inspired stuff going on in Duck Soup that has stood the test of time, including the famous mirror gag with Groucho, Harpo, and Chico, which launched a thousand copycats or homages on stage, screen, and TV over the years, even if McCary himself cannot take full credit for that one. Still spirited and clever, it's such a fun movie, despite McCary's own personal objections, and I love it, especially how bold it is about rising fascism in the early 1930s. But what about you? So talk to me about Duck Soup. Well, Duck Soup, I, I find amazing because it, it, it remains um, so fresh as a comedy when comedy yeah. goes stale fastest. And uh, it is, it's the least McCary-esque movie that we're going to talk about. So mm-hmm. I almost feel like we shouldn't, I, I don't want to linger on it too long other than it's a remarkable, sure. just in its, on its own, it's a remarkable feat to have made that movie because it's so funny. And you can see how it inspired early Woody Allen and even some of the cuts, there's there's one cut where you've gone gone away from Groucho and you come back and uh, in a cut he's sitting on uh, Margaret Dumont's lap and and it's just very Woody, fabulously yes. funny and and sort of um, it it pushes like almost uh, comedic film twenty years forward like like I, I'd never seen a cut like that in anything. Mm-hmm. Um, And he loved doing in-camera cuts because he wanted to make sure that he was in control of the film. So he was kind of a step ahead of them a little bit. Um, How did I have two months to read about this guy? And you know so much more. Uh, Because Fair and Smith Nemi sent me like just every PDF under the sun. Do you know Farron at all? She's amazing. She's a historian. You can see her on the Criterion channel all the time. She's interviewed Scorsese. She's actually on the Criterion disc for, I think it's Love Affair. And uh, I just mentioned I was doing this and she sent me tons of research. So that was very kind. And thank you, Farron. Yes. Okay. Um, I, uh, the, uh, by the way, the other, um, the connection to my family here is that my grandfather directed the Marx Brothers in Room Service, which is- Oh, I remember that second one. Second tier Marx Brothers. But fun. I, I, don't, I don't know if- it's hard to tell when sort of reading um, reading up on these things what to um, what to believe. I think when you've been a part of a project and then you read all the press about it and you realize how much of it is just made uh, apocryphal and or how much of it is yeah. made up, you begin to doubt things you've read about. Um, oh, what a delight it was shooting this movie. <laughs> it's like, you probably- Yeah, everybody... all the media training to say the right thing every time. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, so so uh, I think, rooms, I can't remember what year room service was, but it was a few years after that. Uh, but it was uh, another place where my grandfather was sort of in the same um, track as uh, McCary. Um, so- it, this is one of the uh, movies where there's a, I think a Mark Twain quote, which is uh, dissecting, a, analyzing a joke is like dissecting a frog. Uh, yeah. no, no one enjoys it and the frog dies where it's sort of like um, room service is just gonzo. It's great. It sort of ends and then it's just over, uh, but that's fine. It sort of, um, yeah. It, it, it did what it had to. And you're amazed that Zeppo was ever allowed on onto the soundstage in the first place. Like he has <laughs> um, 
some uh, somehow uh, somehow it, God was giving out a lot of talent in that family and then ran out. Um, oh, <laughs> I know that's a yeah, but he's he dead. was always he's trying dead. to be the romantic lead essentially, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but he had a good career along with another. Was it Gummo? Uh, yeah, yeah. Marks representing writers and actors and people, so that's good. Um, yeah. By the way, and have you ever heard the, uh, listen to the musical uh, a, night, a Day in Hollywood and the Night in the, Ukra- night in the Ukraine? No. Like from 19, it was the year you were born. It was from 8081. It was off Broadway and then Broadway. And it's sort of a, a tribute to Hollywood's golden era. But the second act is they make up a new Marx Brothers movie that is a, a musical. And it's sort of, um, I was talking to my wife and uh people that she's working with about doing like a just a quick like one time only um uh version of it to raise money for the uh, oh, Ukraine. That's wonderful. Really, there's no reason to do that show other than Ukraine's in the title, but um it's it's sort of a uh if you go online and find the soundtrack, it's sort of sort of a goof. There are a couple of good like mock Groucho songs and a mock Zeppo song, which is why I brought this up. Um, they're sort of like, oh, that's a parody of a, of a song they would give to Zeppo. Um, that's amazing. Hmm? Are you okay. kidding? Yes. The first four hour broadcast a podcast. Um, <laughs> but I, I mean, in truth, uh, Ruggles of Red Gap is a much more of a McCary movie. Yeah. We discussed it. And mm-hmm. um, uh, but it also uh, leans into I think what I'm talking about of being very funny, but also um, having a lot of humanity in it. In that there and there are antagonists in there, but the the scene with the um, Gettysburg Address, where oh sort of, yes, where every even like people characters who could be dismissed as yokels, sort of you realize have a lot of um, depth yeah. to them, and um, uh, and I'm gonna. And Lawton loved it so much that years later, like to rally the troops, essentially on the hunchback set, he would just perform it and uh, (laughs) would do that years later. So, yeah, it's a beautiful scene. Um, Have you ever seen there's a uh, an anthology movie about a guy who gives out who sends million dollar checks to a bunch of uh, oh I should really remember the name of it million dollar checks to a, a random people and one of them is directed by Lubitsch with Charles Lawton and ah. it's, a, it's a short one and it's all he's a guy at a desk almost like the scene from um, the apartment with C.C. Baxter which is in itself a sort of reference to is it the crowd king vitor's the crowd where it's just like mm-hmm. a huge job space. yeah anyway same sort of thing charles lawton gets a a check in the mail made out to him for a million dollars and you see him sort of get up very properly and uh and walk out of the office and he walks up a staircase and another staircase and then he goes into a room anteroom and then goes through a door into another anteroom and the secretary waves him in goes into another room and, and sort of like building 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 yeah. and he finally gets into the boss's office and the boss looks up and he says yes and charles lawton gives him a raspberry just ah. that's all he says in the whole movie um oh that's wonderful and another episode of that same anthology was directed by my grandfather with i think uh henry fonda in it but it's not great um okay. anyway, sorry that's a, a theme and no that that's interesting though total total tributary to go down um 
But no, yeah, duck soup. No. It's hard to break down comedy. You you said it. You know, kind of like that line. You know, talking about love is like dancing about architecture. So yeah, <laughs> we probably won't stay too much on duck soup, but it's a great movie if you haven't seen it or it's been a while. Listeners, do check it out. I love it. It's so fast. It's so chaotic. It's very unmacary though. And he acknowledged that he said, well, you know, with Groucho, he was working with four or five of the best joke writers and depending way more on dialogue because that's what he needed to get the laughs more than McCary liked to do. And I think of the of the group, he said that Harpo was his favorite because it reminded him of the early days of silent film and working with the Hal Roach studios. But he was the one that kind of started to introduce reaction shots when he moved from silent into uh, this era and duck soup has so many great reaction shots as Ted was saying. Yeah. Uh, there is, by the way, I went and looked into, watched a few of the shorts that I could find um, by McCary. And the one that I thought was, um, he did, I watched a couple that he did with Charlie Chase who's a uh, another silent comedian who's probably you know it was it was certainly more forgotten than Harold Lawyer a lot of other people uh he happens to appear in Sons of the Desert directed by my grandfather so there's a connection wow. there but um and it, and for good reason like he's just not I, he's not as funny as some of the uh, other guys but I did watch one with Laurel and Hardy called Putting Pants on Philip okay uh, which is about when Stan Laurel comes over from Ireland and Oliver Hardy is like uh, supposed to pick him up and Stan Laurel only has a, is only wearing a kilt. And so the whole movie is about Oliver Hardy trying to take, get him to a haberdashery to get pants on him. That's uh, funny. 20-minute film. Uh, one of the <laughs> about making shorts is that's all you needed. And uh, there's some very... Uh, and Stan Laurel is very Harpo-esque in this in that he is girl crazy. Like every every American woman he sees, he's like yeah. trying to chase and, and, and sort of hump the leg of um, <laughs> yeah. the way Harpo would. But there's this one visual gag, which is um, fairly risque, which is finally they get him into a tailor and the Stan Laurel will not let the tailor measure his inseam because the guy's oh, wow. hand, he's not wearing underwear and the guy's hand is going. Oh up yeah. With, like, yeah. The, the kill. And so, yeah. and there's this huge struggle and finally Oliver Hardy tackles Stan Laurel and they fall behind a curtain. So you don't see him, but you know that uh, Oliver Hardy has the tape measure and like there's this pregnant pause. And then Oliver Hardy comes out very smugly, like, you know, he got, he got the measurement and then there's another pregnant pause. And then Stan Laurel comes out with this kind of weepy face. Like he's been violated. Um, oh, wow. It's this silent movie joke about male rape, which is Yikes. pretty funny, uh, you know, yeah. uh, in, in the pre pre code era. Oh uh, yeah. So if, um, if that sounds like your listeners cup of tea, uh, check it out. Uh, yeah. It's, absolutely free on youtube putting pants on philip pants on philip all right yeah Yeah. Uh, a title title is it's not just a clever title it's also the plot it's not a confusing title like terriers it just tells you (laughs) um that's funny well we can move on this brings us to the year 1937 which 
ushered in one of the most creatively and professionally fulfilling eras of Leah McCary's life as a filmmaker, with the release of two tonally different yet masterful movies, both well-regarded by McCary, the nostalgic yet incisive tearjerker Make Way for Tomorrow, and the classic screwball comedy of Remarriage, The Awful Truth. Based upon the novel The Years Are So Long by Josephine Lawrence, as well as the stage play adaptation by Helen and Noah Leary, Make Way for Tomorrow is centered on an elderly couple who, upon losing their home to foreclosure, find themselves struggling to find lodging together in the homes of their five busy adult children. A film that Orson Welles told Peter Bogdanovich would make a stone cry yet one that due to the universality of its characters and themes of aging parents, children, familial obligations, and economic woes has remained ageless enough to have inspired various interpretations, including most famously Ozu's Tokyo Story, Make Way for Morrow is a heartbreaking triumph. It's also the work that McCary personally felt was his finest, to the point that when he won the Best Director Oscar, For 1937's other release, The Awful Truth, he said, thanks, but you gave it to me for the wrong picture. And looking back on it later in life, he surmised, if I really have talent, this, meaning make way for tomorrow, is where it appears. Still, if you ask any fan, the same can also be said for the picture which gave him the Oscar in the first place, a movie that he also not only really enjoyed making, but was also the one he shot most rapidly, The Awful Truth. Based on Arthur Richmond's 1923 play by the same name, Truth was the first of three movies, also including My Favorite Wife and Penny Serenade, that Cary Grant would make with the woman whom he felt had the best timing of anyone he had ever worked with, the glorious Irene Dunn. The clever comedy about two duplicitous and or distrustful spouses who divorce and only after realize just how crazy they really are about one another. It was made in a heavily improvised, fast-paced style where half the fun seems to be in watching the actors react to something just jaw-droppingly hysterical that one of their co-stars, also including Skippy the Dog from the Thin Man movies, just did. Two excellent films that probably should be discussed separately, so feel free to take them one by one or piece by piece. Still, it's hard not to marvel at the range on display for McCary from the pair released in 1937, so I'll let you get us started. It's a pretty remarkable one-two punch. I was trying to think Spielberg in 93 making Jurassic Park and Schindler's Schindler's List List. uh, uh, comes to mind just because they're you know, totally couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm sort of torn about which is, you know, which movie he should have gotten the Oscar for, because uh-huh. I think there are moments of the awful truth, which is, are, it's arguably my favorite comedy of all time. And so uh, funny. And the performances are, are so funny and yet human uh, and I think the third act is a little bit of a train wreck. Uh, it not, is. Not it also goes much too quickly. Like it just ends. And yes. um, yeah. A Which is a, a, uh, not uncommon in uh, screwball comedy, meaning no. uh, Midnight by co-written by Billy Wilder, directed by Mitchell Leeson, I think is had a, if you had a different, if it wasn't Mitchell Leeson or somebody else's name would be 
in the canon uh, terrible third act uh, <laughs> of that movie. Um, and also, if you, um, I always take a grain of salt when they talk about how much Leo McCary improvised. I can see there, there are moments of improvisation uh you know within scenes when you're working on something but if you're improvising a whole movie that you you end up with a third act like that um yeah but I, I mean i i think that this may have been a result apparently the play it was based on was pretty um clunky mm. uh i think it was something that um columbia owned and just said okay do something with this uh uh where else to uh uh, start off talking about these two movies. Um, so I'm going to just go right there with say, one thing. One thing I want to mention is that uh, they were both written or co-written by Vina Del Mar. Yes. Um, and um, because, as I said before, uh, the the two authority is, I think, dubious. Although when you look at most of the work of McCary, you can see, I think, a personality that runs through them. Oh, if not, yeah. if not necessarily like a stylist, the way you, if you watch Hitchcock or uh, mm-hmm. uh, Scorsese, yeah. or some other not visual movies. signatures, but you can right. sense, yeah, his uh, interest. But you, you can sen- sense this. This this is the guy um, uh, behind the camera. Uh, but credit due to Vina Del Mar, not only for writing these two movies in the same year, which is a feat. Uh, yes. On its own, but I wanted to bring this up, which is um, a little earlier on. There was a movie, I think, in 1935 called Chance at Heaven, which was based on a book she wrote. This was the movie directed by my grandfather, oh. starred my grandmother, which commenced their his the fourth her third marriage. Okay, so they they did this Chance at Heaven. They they hooked up, making that movie, had a daughter who had me. So in a sense, Vina Del Mar is responsible for my existence. And I want to salute her for, for that contribution to society. Yeah. Uh, I have a story like that has nothing to do with McCary, but I always say the same for Sidney Pollack and Robert Redford because my, yeah, my parents' first date was Jeremiah Johnson and my mom wasn't (laughs) sure she wanted to go. And so my joke was, you know, if it was a bad movie and they had nothing to talk about afterwards, maybe I wouldn't be here. So, yeah, you never uh, know. Movies. Yeah. Movies. They, they, uh, they get Bring people, people together. I mean, what you said. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and in fact, I, on, uh, on terms of the awful truth criterion collection disc, there is a documentary, I think, uh, or an interview with Gary Giddens. Um, and oh, he's yeah, talking he's about on a few her. of them. Very good. And they go to, they show a picture of her uh, in conversation on a couch with my grandmother. Uh, oh, no way. I was, I was just watching this, this the, in preparation for this, the DB extra was like, hey, there's, there's grandma, who I did know until That's I- That's uh, amazing. She, she passed away when I was uh, 11, 12. Um, so, uh, so that was a nice little connection and a little Easter oh. egg just for me. Um, let's talk about way make way for tomorrow. Cause it was first. And because it sort of goes into, um, my main theme here of sort of top of top of people's humanity. And I'm going to take a side road here and talk about, uh, a book that I recommend to a lot of people, which is Alexander McKendrick's on filmmaking, the, he was the Ealing studio director of um Ooh, I gotta read this. Came to Hollywood and made Sweet Smell Success and then spent the last 
decades of his life teaching at CalArts. And he wrote a book, which I think is probably the best sort of how-to book on the craft of filmmaking, both. Wow. So the nuts and bolts more than theory. That's cool. Um, just sort of storytelling of like, okay, here's, sure. here, here's what what works. Like movies are always about what's going to happen next. Uh, yes. How to um, approach a scene directorially. Uh, so it's uh, it's not an academic piece. It's a, um, uh, but it's also not like, it, it's not getting too much into the, into the nitty gritty of uh, this is the lens you want to use on this. Okay. Um, yeah. But he does take one chapter, which I find very insightful, because uh, he talks about making Sweet Smell a success, which he had a masterpiece, uh, yep. a, a masterpiece uh, asterisk uh, to that statement, which I'll get okay. to, which is so they had a draft by Ernest Lehman, who is a mm-hmm. phenomenal screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, but as they commenced production, they had uh, Clifford Odets, the great playwright. Uh, rewriting it and uh, and what happened was Odette's really did like elevated it considerably but he spent so much time elevating it that he only got to about page 45 of the script and then the production kind of kept going and I think when you watch the movie there's a point like around 45 minutes in the movie where it's sort of like not as good um, like it, I, I think that the beginning of that movie is just, uh, sensational and yeah. every, every line is dazzling and it just blows your hair back. And what, uh, in the book on filmmaking, Alexander Kendrick reprints layman's version of the 21 scene, the scene where you first meet Burt Lancaster, where, yes. where Tony Curtis goes in and, um, uh, uh, which is a really crackling scene. Yes, and it is. Yeah. You read the layman version and it's like, yeah, this is yeah, pretty good. And sort of like everything is kind of there. It's just not, um, uh, it's fine. And mm-hmm. then he reprints the Odette rewrite. And not only does he do that, but he takes, he takes every line and he says, okay, if Tony Curtis says this, then Burt Lancaster hears this, thinks this, Wow. He's got to say that. And so he says this instead, as opposed to uh, like he, he goes through all the subtext that has to go through between characters. And so he me- ends up sort of showing you how the script reads uh, all the subtext uh, of every scene. So it, the scene reads incredibly long. Like if you wrote a screenplay this way, it would be 500 pages. Um, mm-hmm. But it is the the greatest demonstration of writing to the top of a character's intelligence so that people because people don't say things to set up other characters for zingers no Uh, what you're saying actually reminds me of howard hawks who liked to use what he called like three cushion dialogue which kind of goes around what you really mean because he said people don't really talk about exactly what they want or if they're confronting someone they don't do it as directly sometimes. And yeah, it reveals a lot uh, to do it that way. Yeah. And it's it's a sign, I, I think, of laziness on the writer's part of saying, well, I need this character to say this for my uh, purposes, for yeah. my, my purposes. And therefore, I'll put this in their mouth. And um, and so it's always like uh, when you reread yourself, you go uh, that that. <laughs> I got. I got to give the. the you got to give that character enough respect to not just make him a puppet. What I like how this uh, 
links up to make way up to McCary is, uh, and especially for my money, um, make way for tomorrow is that I think the same thing happens only, uh, again, not only just top of their intelligence, but, uh, top of their humanity. Uh, and it's, uh, the scene that comes to mind is that is the scene where Thomas Mitchell or Beulah Bondi, uh, comes out, sees the piece of mail that's come from the women's rest home. And, oh God. And, so and, devastating. And, and, and you know what that is. And Thomas Mitchell, she puts it back. Thomas Mitchell, her son, comes in, who's probably, I haven't looked this up, but I imagine Thomas Mitchell was probably two years older than Beulah Bondi playing. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those Jesse Royce Landis sort of uh, and Cary Grant uh, incongruities that movies <laughs> um, And so they have this conversation where they both, they're both coming at this situation out of a lot of love for each other there's a natural conflict because the son really needs to get his mother to move out uh, of the apartment. And they both uh, sort of fight for who's going to speak first. And then the mother lets him off the hook and he realizes that she's letting him off the hook and all this love is expressed Mm -hmm. non-verbally. And you're right there as an audience member picking it all up, which is very, it seems very easy when you're watching it and is not, I think. Um, and that's, uh, that's masterful directing and writing. Uh, but if you write it well, not directed well, then, uh, obviously, yeah. sorry. Um, so that's, that's the scene that, uh, has always astonished me. Yep. And there's this, you know, there's the thing that they always talk about Lubitsch of like where he sets up a gag where it's sort of like he does one plus one and lets the audience figure out the math and then Mm -hmm. and I feel like McCary does that emotionally in this scene Um, and I think in the third act which is a gut-wrenching third act uh, because you're expecting it to be because it it remains uh, subtextual uh, that the that this is the last time these people who've loved each other for 50 years are likely ever to see one another. And, um, and so, so you're sort of on the, uh, you're, you, I always find I'm, uh, as I'm watching that scene that I'm on the edge of crying, but not crying, which is somehow more of an accomplishment because it doesn't, it's, there are a lot of easy ways uh, that you could kind of turn that into just a tearjerker. Uh, and yet there's a restraint to that movie, which I, um, admire. Yeah, Um, I agree with you. I think it's a masterpiece. I know, um, he was very angry with the handling of make way for tomorrow. And I did look up some posters that kind of sold it almost like a romantic thriller, or there's a really strange or just a intense melodrama. There's some strange posters out there for it. And it took, I guess, a year to make for McCary. He loved it so much. And then when he did The Awful Truth, he said later that he was still so angry that he felt like he was a guy slugging with tears running down his face when he made The Awful Truth. So, I mean, he loved making it, but he was still just in that frame of mind for tomorrow or make way for tomorrow. He had just lost his father when he decided to make the movie. And so I can't even imagine how emotional that whole thing would have been to do. I think it's also what we were saying about reactions or human behavior with McCary and the humanism, like right at the beginning, when we first meet all of the adult kids, 
And the one comes in that's kind of called the good looking one, I think, or something Mm -hmm. like that, you know, and just the way he takes a dig at his sister or kisses his sister and then immediately goes, oh, that's right. I have a cold. And, you know, just some of the reactions, like we understand the dynamics of, you know, who's on top, you know, kid wise, what that person thinks of somebody else. And just, again, it's the stuff that happens between the dialogue because McCary he was interested in dialogue, but he was also, I think, from that silent background, very interested in what you could accomplish with nonverbal clues. You also talked about um, crying or being on the edge of tears, but not actually crying. And that's also very McCary. There was a quote I was looking for, but I could not find it, where somebody said he was on the uh, edge of irritability all the time or the characters like they're they're almost irritated but they're not like sometimes they're amused that seems to be a thing the make way for tomorrow sequence that kills me of course is the ending and how the parents have this like glorious day and recreate their honeymoon so to speak or their young courtship Mm -hmm. and they're being treated with more kindness by strangers than their own children but at the same time we've been in the children's houses and some of those i mean they would not have been able to live in. So you understand all the characters, you might not agree with everything. And there's just so much to this movie that feels ageless, I think. And um, the uh, the other thing that struck me watching it this time is within the first 30 seconds, you kind of have this groan of like, oh God, this is a religious picture. It, yes. it, starts, it starts off with the, the, as the good book says, honor they father and mother. Yes. And, and and there's sort of like a little bit of that, and I think at the beginning of going my way. But McCary was very Catholic. I yeah. think there the there's a like kind of a wink wink, and some of the writing about him that he was a bit of a philanderer, which mm-hmm. makes sense for awful truth. Um, but he was. Uh, but there seems to be a running theme of religion through his movies. But it the movies never get to. I don't know if I'm using the word proselytize correctly, but it sounded so good when I was thinking about what to talk about that I'm just going to yeah. say it's not proselytizing. Um, no, and then it starts. It 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 sort of starts off there, but then it doesn't like it all. There's no religious reference, but what I do do feel is that the movie is a great um, instigator towards better behavior, meaning you can watch that movie and you want to go out and you want to be a little nicer to your folks, or you want to be uh, like, if you're, if you're a manager at a hotel, you want to be like, you know what? I don't know what those (laughs) like. uh, I I should be a better person. Um, And uh, yeah, there's a humanism and an empathy in these movies. When I was doing some research, I read Dave Kerr's piece on love affair And he was taking a look at all of the McCary movies and the use of religion in the films. And he was pointing out in his mind, uh, going my way and Bells of St. Mary's are probably the least religious as far as he was considering. He thought they weren't overly pious. He was actually looking at the earlier films as kind of having these Christian elements woven right through them. Uh, He said, What's most striking is how secular they are. Talking about the Bing Crosby movies, they're largely devoid of explicit spiritual content. But he said in Make Way for Tomorrow, The Awful Truth, and Love Affair, you have a more active, more benign, more inspiring God. And he talks about the ending of the movie. And he said, 
in their last day together, they have tasted a kind of paradise, a hint of their eternal return that finds youth in old age and life and death. And that in his movies, people were always looking for a perfect Christian marriage or a union of souls versus, you know, according to in The Awful Truth and Love Affair, you have couples that start as individuals who are not yet complete and who are involved in unions that are superficial and unsanctified. And then by the end, they get corrected with that. So he was finding more religion in these movies than the Bing Crosby pictures. And I found that interesting. I'm a little pissed off because I'm friendly with Dave Kerr and missed that article entirely. Oh, sorry. Didn't read it. And I'll uh, send it and to you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and Dave Kerr, bringing it all back, is the one guy out there who actually wrote a piece about my grandfather. He wrote an appreciation. Wow. Uh, now I want to read that. So you send that one to me. We'll exchange. I will. I okay. think it was for film comment. I don't want to get that wrong, but uh, a, a little uh, name droppy anecdote was I showed up for work one day on Wolf of Wall Street and uh, Martin Scorsese waved me over and uh, he, he said, uh, uh, here, kid, get And he, he passed me this Dave Kerr article that had just oh, published wow. Cider, which is why Martin Scorsese is the um, is the Leo McCary of my life. He's, he's just a, uh, not only top of his intelligence, but top of his humanity. Yeah, uh, he, oh, that's he, he beautiful. One, the one guy who knew who my grandfather was and then had the consideration to let me know that um, he was having a, uh, uh, a minor revival and uh, thanks to Dave Kerr. Um, all right. Uh, uh, off of me and on, no, uh, back to my grandfather for a second um, where, cause it, it's a segue. Um, my grandfather also directed Cary Grant in a movie called hot Saturday currently on the criterion channel in their. Ooh, I'm going to have to take a look at that. Uh, nah, yeah. okay. Just for, to be a completist, but it, it, yeah. it's, it's not a bad movie. It certainly um, proves the point that, like, Cary Grant was uh, handsome and charming, but not yet Cary Grant until no. Leo McCary kind of formed him for Awful Truth. I mean, they're, they're, they're flashes of it, maybe in Topper, but the lore is that both Cary Grant was scared shitless of doing awful truth. He tried to get out of it. Yeah. He tried tried to buy his way out of it or. Yeah. With 5,000 and McCary was pissed and said, I'll match you or whatever. And so he uh, went like, Um, okay, we'll get 10,000. He wanted Joel McRae to fill in for him. Cary Grant. He was like, no, I would rather do the Ralph Bellamy part because he said, I'm just going to make a fool out of myself. And he also had a problem with, uh, he's like, who would cheat on Irene Dunn? Yeah. Because she's so beautiful, and he just thought he was going to look like a fool. Yeah, uh, and and the 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 story continues that that he sort of copied McC- like McCary would give him mannerisms and oh uh, uh, that that McCary Grant then sort of copied and and it, um, became his sort of comic uh, persona, which I think is probably yeah, legit, uh, given that my favorite wife is very much uh in this uh, mold um of course when he comes back to do an affair to remember i think that's a very like it, it's not a the same kind of comedy and so so he's not doing quite the same thing but um but yes uh credit mccary not only for introducing laurel to hardy but sort of making Cary grant uh comedically uh making Cary grant and also helping give him the confidence because he was 
really scared to do all the improv. Like it got to the point Irene Dunn said where we just didn't learn lines because you worried that the next day they would change all of the time. So said uh, McCary would come in, there'd be a piano on set and he would sit down and start playing. And like while he was playing, I guess he was an amateur songwriter and had written hundreds. But while he was playing, he kind of figured out what he wanted to do in his mind. She said sometimes it took till the afternoon to figure out what they were going to do, which is amazing when you hear it's the movie he shot the fastest, like in six weeks. But, you know, everybody was working really well. He most famously for Cary Grant, um, the scene where he comes in to visit the dog. Uh, Carrie didn't really have a line. It was something like, hello, my ex-wife, or I can't yeah. remember what it was. And Carrie is the one that came up with because he said, well, what do I say next? And he said, whatever you think of. Carrie came up with, it's my day to see Mr. Smith. And uh, so then they built the whole scene around it. So I think he really helped Carrie Grant get that confidence and know what he could do. You mentioned Affair to Remember. Uh, McCary talked about how, unlike Charles Boyer, who could mask his humor, he said there is no way that he can mask his extraordinary sense of humor, which he felt that Cary Grant had. So he said that's why Affair to Remember is funnier. Yes. Right. Uh, the other thing, and just thinking about Awful Truth, is there are very few lines that sort of come to mind that are yeah. funny as opposed to if you watch duck soup, it's sort of like, it's a, yeah. Um, All the Groucho lines. One, one liner after another, but what, what you think about are quite often reactions or behaviors. Uh, yeah. And uh, for instance, when Cary Grant is watching Ralph Bellamy dance with Irene Dunn, the, the joke is just how much he's, enjoying how how much pain she's in um having to dance with them yeah uh, or it makes her, them do it again yes yes uh or when she's singing her recital and watches Cary Grant wipe out in the chair how she like there's that laugh that's just on the edge of her singing voice that then finally so cracks good. it's it's uh it's so much about finding those moments and not um being verbally clever uh, which is um, there's a filmmaker that I have issues with uh, who I won't name, who's uh, I, I say uh, all his movies are from the neck up. Uh, okay, sure. They're all, they're all uh, they've got no um, heart, harder balls. Uh, and that is uh, something I like about McClary, uh, McClary as well. They're very intelligent. They don't rely on uh, cleverness. Um, yeah, they don't. I'm not sure if that's worth including, or if you want to hear have the word balls in your. Oh, you're fine. Podcast, but but yeah, now I'm no, he's bringing back Pratt balls and the acrobatics that Cary Grant could do from you know the silent era. Uh, when I was researching the awful truth, I read that somebody called it an anti-musical because it does have musical yeah. numbers, but then you know you insert that laughter, which is so good, and. Um, the way it kind of deconstructs musicals or what you would expect, especially when you have Irene Dunn, who was trained, you know, in opera and can really sing. I also love those reactions. Uh, it's interesting because this is a couple that is well-to-do, but the movie is also kind of for the Depression era, poking fun at the nouveau riche and also mm -hmm. the old money. So it kind of seems to be implying that, you know, being middle rich, 
like Cary Grant and Irene Dunn are, it's the way to go, essentially. And I thought that was a fascinating read on that. When I watched The Awful Truth this time, I was thinking, boy, I love Irene Dunn. And who do we have now that could be like an Irene Dunn? And one person I thought of happens to be your wife, the gorgeous and talented Sutton Foster, who kind of has an Irene Dunn uh, capability. And I just think, you know, she could probably play the hell out of uh, this character. Between us, we have two Tonys. I just like to mention that. that <laughs> uh, our family in aggregate have, yes. has, has, um, we have one Emmy loss, uh, but okay. two Tonys. Um, okay. And uh, uh, yes, if she, um, uh, oh, I don't want to just talk about my wife. It's all I do all day is talk about her. <laughs> Um, but if she wasn't so good on stage, it's, it's, uh, she should do, uh, more of that. I, I wish, uh, I wish Bunheads had certainly lasted another. Oh, that was my favorite. Yes. Um, she had lots of, uh, what do we say? Dunian moments. uh, She did. Yeah. Um, but going back to it, there are a couple points I wanted to, uh, echo, because you said uh, Awful Truth is sort of an anti-musical. It's strange. Mm-hmm. Love Affair is kind of the same thing. There are musical. Yes. Oh, good point. Uh, with the kids, it was nominated for Best Song. And then again, uh, going my way more obviously is like, and now let's have Bing sing. But it never feels <laughs> gratuitous uh, the way. Yeah. Like, oh, it's been 10 minutes. Let's like, uh, let's sing <laughs> about the weather. Sing. The weather. Yeah. Um, but, but I do find it interesting uh, as far as the it's um, how it deals with class, because it is one of those movies where they are the idle rich. Yeah, uh, I, I don't Absolutely. think I don't know if Cary Grant ever gets um, even if somebody if anybody says what he does for a living. But you I, know, I no, was wondering that. Yeah, he just, there's no scene in an office. No. And yet there is something slightly ambitious in who they date when, mm-hmm. once they split. In that a little bit, yes. Certainly got a lot more money than Dunn does, but he is new. It's new money, and Cary Grant starts dating some very old money. Old money, and so by comparison, they sort of come off playing middle class. So there is something uh, when they're at their worst, which is aspirational, uh, yeah, class and are ambitious. Uh, and yet, I, I think one of the reasons why we feel like they're right together is they there's an absurd sense that they're middle class, even though they're extraordinarily wealthy and don't have to worry about money. Um, yeah, she's and, sitting around the apartment wearing those evening gowns, and we just we have no idea but what they do for a living. But yeah, it's I think in the depression, you know, they made those glamorous movies where you could watch this world that you weren't living in, but that made them more accessible. I know that uh, McCary said that this movie was kind of inspired by his real life. He did say in one interview, except for the infidelities, of course, but everything we've ever read about McCary having a weakness for pretty women and seeing someone in the commissary and falling in love with them because of how they ate salad in five minutes or something like that. Like he was always falling in love. So you see that also little details from his life, like the, the coal mine line uh, when he uh, McCary was extremely accident prone, very unlucky, which kind of goes after my heart because I'm the clumsiest person ever. And uh, I guess when he was a younger man, like post-college, just barely, 
he fell down an elevator shaft and he sued. Yeah. And he got $5,000, but then he invested it in like a coal mine and it went bust. And so some of these little things that he slips into these movies and this one in particular, he said, was definitely a part of his life. So, yeah. The the other, his other, um, he was in a car crash later that took him out of my favorite wife. Yes. I think he uh, produced, but yeah, unfortunately. Sorry, which? Did he produce or, or oh, you know, he ended up producing it and, and Garson Kanan directed it, but he was supposed to direct it. Yes. Uh, and I think you can kind of feel like, the, especially the first half hour, you kind of feel like, oh, this is very much a, mm-hmm. a reteaming of that, uh, yeah. of that game, the awful truth. And the other uh, foible is that he was directing a movie called The Milky Way with Harold Lloyd. And there was a, like at the rap party, a promotional thing where they all drank milk. And apparently the milk he drank was bad and sent him, made him deathly ill. And he had to go to the hospital for, uh, oh my God. for several weeks uh, from drinking unpasteurized milk. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, only in the 30s, maybe. Um, yeah. What did I want to say about, there's something about... Um, well, it kind of uh, this class conversation kind of leads us into love affair because there's a similar thing there where you when you meet the characters, they're extraordinarily elegant on this cruise ship and they seem also like the idle rich. But in fact, what you begin to realize is they're both like on somebody's uh, somebody else's dime. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, she's being uh, kept, and yeah, yeah, uh, she's being kept. He's going to mar- marry an heiress, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and so by they choose love over class in that, and then has sort of have to, uh, he, he has to prove himself that he, that he's, that he can, uh, um, be, uh, self, self-supporting and, and, and she has to learn to walk again. Um, and there's something, I guess it brings to mind something that, uh, as opposed to Lubitsch, Sturgis, and Capra, Lubitsch feels like movies, the, the elegant, sophisticated movies about like rich people, even if, even if it's to dear not to be, uh, there's some, yeah, what uh, the Italians called, you know, white telephone movies, basically yes. before they yeah, yeah made those neorealist films in response. Yes. Uh, I'm trying to think about like, uh, I mean, Sturgis obviously in, in Sullivan's travels looks very much at class. Um, and uh but lady eve is uh swims in this world of mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about money uh and capra is very much um dealing with uh class and capra always sort of rubs me i think it's wonderful life is a masterpiece and and unassailable so i'm putting that aside but there's always something about Capra and about, I think, Hollywood movies that mimic it, where it's there's something pandering that's saying to its yes. lar- its largest audience, which are middle and lower class people, of like you're you're happier being there. That like there, yeah, it's a little there. condescending. What, what yeah. really matters is yeah. family and love and all that, and mm-hmm. therefore always choose that over the money and. There's uh, and one thing I like about McCary is that I don't think he ever panders that way or sort of no. pats the audience on its head and says, "Oh, you're better off. Look at um, uh, look at how miserable those rich people are." Um, 
uh sorry just came to my one thing i love about the movie arthur is it ends with him saying oh i'm gonna choose love and i'm gonna take the money don't I'm, that's one of my ask. favorites yes um, i know that, that is a uh, <laughs> like just being rich you know it doesn't suck is another line yes. in that movie yes um, yeah, absolutely uh anyway but now that we're on love affair um uh do i oh by the way uh i was gonna say <laughs> now that we're on love affair uh, personal anecdote, which will have a minor point, which is that uh, my so my grandfather dies in '64, William A. Sider. McCary mm-hmm. uh, does in '69, I think. My grandmother, Mary Nixon, remarries in the early '70s to a, uh, a gentleman named Ben Lyon, who is famous for being the star of uh, Howard Hughes's Hell's Angels. He's oh the, wow, okay. Uh, star of that has has a moment uh, of being. Um, sort of a uh, a movie star in the 30s and then becomes a talent scout for Fox in the 50s, finds this blonde actress named uh, Norma Jean and according to her, renames her. Uh, uh, he was responsible wow. for Marilyn Monroe. Um, and then uh, later in life, uh, because is the man I I call grandpa and and know for about four years as a as a young kid until he drops dead on the QE two of a heart attack during one of those oh like, meet the movie stars of the golden era cruises. Um, no way! Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, which is a very tenuous connection to love affair, but the other connection to to Leo McCary is that uh, a movie that we're not talking about because it's not great is uh, that he made called Indiscreet, starring yes. Gloria Swanson, which who's very odd to watch and not see Norma Desmond. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you there. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. the the romantic lead in that is Ben Lyon. So so one my grandpa that I knew yeah. actually was starred in the Leo McCary movie, but um, that has maybe one scene that's worth looking at. But it's uh, this is basically six degrees of Leo McCary. Yes, what we're doing. What yeah, yeah. Um, and um, but uh, so all that said, I think I mean Love Affair is uh, first. It's a movie that has um, has been now remade twice, and will I, I assume like Stars Born will will get another one at some point. First, McCary made it himself. I agree. I mean, you could also say like Sleepless in Seattle has enough in common, is, and it keeps yes. citing it that that might be a remake as well. For McCary, he talked about it. It's just his favorite love story. And he said every actress he talked to who had the part, whether it was on a radio play or a TV version or film, would tell him, oh, that's the best role I had or, oh, that was my favorite love story. And so by the time he got to 19, um, the 1950s, he thought, you know, two generations have kind of gone by that don't really know the story. And so he just felt like retelling this one because, yeah, it meant so much. It's also just so gorgeous to look at. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a beautiful film. There's, you know, and I got to ask you as uh, a New Yorker, is it, does this one hold some significance more significance with the empire state building um i'm i even just being described as a new yorker sort of makes me my elbow fall off the chair because i i grew up oh. in Pasadena and therefore i feel get like get your it. facts straight jen yeah no 
No, no, no. It's all right. Because I've, I've lived here for off and on for basically 20 years. But yeah. because when I think of Love Affair, what I love about it, like most of the stuff I really love is on the cruise ship. Like, I feel like that. I agree. Where... I think it's a better film for the first half. And he yeah. did, too. He was actually getting worried about that. He brought in a different writer. He was trying to figure it out. He's like, once we get back and they get off the ship, you know, there's a lull and it does feel a little overlong. He did prefer this version though. He said, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and again, I'll, I'll give credit in the second half, all the characters are like uh, her jilted ex-fiance, a decent guy mm-hmm. shows up. Like it's, is completely there for an understanding. Um, like all the characters are the best versions of what they can be. Uh, but it is a little bit treading water to get to that scene, which, uh, you know, is a good scene. And the the sort of subtextual moment of Boye seeing the painting and realizing everything oh, yeah. uh, is pretty good. It's just not why I love the movie. It's, it's just the, um, the effervescence of these two people uh, on the ship is... Uh, yeah. Or in Madeira with his grandmother, that sequence yeah. is really beautiful. I've never yeah. seen the Beatty Benning Hepburn version. I of did you. when I was a kid. It, if I remember right, it was not good. But yeah. it was not well received. I remember that much. But okay. Uh, uh, what uh, to say about Love Affair? Um, uh, other than that, it's oh, another really? one that he put together. People that wound up making two more movies together. They made uh, Boyer and Dunn made When Tomorrow Comes and Together Again. Neither one I have seen. Are, have you? Are those uh, good? Nor have I. Um, okay. And uh, I feel like there's some, oh, th- this is a very tiny thing, a fil- total film nerd thing. But what I did notice when I watched it this time is there's a piece of soundtrack uh, when they are coming into port in New York and there's sort of like a dun, 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 or not, not, <laughs> it's not Gershwin, but it's just sort of like uh, yeah. coming into port music where I realized that I just That's like the official name for it. No, I'm just yes. kidding. Yeah. Uh, it, and I have no idea who wrote it because uh, I, I didn't follow, um, didn't look closely enough, but I, re- I said that music is, and I realized it was used in Citizen Kane's newsreel which is not Bernard Herman music, mostly. Wow. Mostly Wells and Robert Wise found like pieces of music from other things that were either that they could just use. And so uh, it's, I think it's like, well, like uh, when Kane did this, you're the, but his uh, papers prospered. You'd like, you heard the coming into port music. And, and so wow. one of those things of like, um, that jolted me out of the movie for a moment. And I thought, well, that's, makes sense that's 39 Kane is 41 they yeah and Wells was a fan too or he respected him yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, and I did read something interesting with Boyer Uh, they found out years later that he owned a lot of prints of movies he loved film and um, he owned now I'm sure he probably had love affair or maybe he didn't although this was the favorite film that he made and um, Irene Dunn was very proud of it too. I don't know if it was her favorite. I think this one and Awful Truth, she actually said yeah. were both of her favorites. But Boyer and his collection owned Ruggles of Red Gap and The Awful Truth. Yeah, okay. he was a big fan. Yep. And slept with my grandmother. 
No, I just made that yeah. up. Okay. So there's no connection to my family and boy. <laughs> um, they're probably He's winking. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd be proud of grandma if it was true. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, the yeah. Warren Beatty of his day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Warren. We're linking things. That Ted. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, uh, anything, um, and, uh, love affair gets followed by, he, uh, sorry, I'm looking at my list. Just, I, well, he, he does my favorite wife where he's producing once upon a honeymoon, which I tried once years ago to watch, which is kind of McCary's attempt at doing like to be or not to be like, a, an anti-Nazi comedy. Yeah, that was not good. It's a dud. <laughs> uh, and then he even acknowledged that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think it flopped pretty, um, uh, we should probably cool. mention he had a horrific car accident after yeah. love affair which is kind of a cruel twist of fate and was a wheelchair round for a little bit um, eventually he did regain usage of his legs but they said that's when the drinking started and also prescription medication some people were saying others would swear up and down that he was never loaded on set because of what he went through with browning and having to like water down the gin every day so browning could finish working but um yeah it it did take a toll but eventually you know he was able to make going my way and be back on top again i'm going to tell a story right now that has nothing to do with our podcast but but at some point ridley scott i think in the 80s had an assistant and every day the assistant had five packs of cigarettes of marlboro reds 100 cigarettes in five packs and the instruction to, to the assistant was always have a cigarette ready f- for Ridley, but cut him off at a hundred. Wow. Couldn't smoke more That's than an amazing story. A day. Yeah. And cause he was so, um, and this is probably, I mean, you can imagine on Blade Runner yeah. uh, and, and Ridley saying at some point, like, I remember when uh, like a couple of days, I, I, there were still hours to go and I'd gone through my hundred. I remember like chasing my assistant down <laughs> saying, give me more. Um, like anyways. cut me off that, that thing. Like no matter yeah. what I say, don't give yeah. me whatever. Yeah. Yes. Don't open this door. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. Young uh, Frankenstein reference. Um, but um, uh, going my way is another movie that feels as you get into it, like, Oh God, it's a religious picture. And I'm meant for something medicinal. And yep. Not only do I think it thrives on being Crosby's just being kind of laid back and charming and whatever McCary was able to do with him, just as he did with Cary Grant. It's uh, I'm, I, I don't know a lot of other Bing Crosby movies. I I've seen scenes with him and I really don't either. Um, yeah. Like I had enough. not seen going my way out of this group of films. This is the one. And I haven't seen bells of St. Mary's like, I only did a year and a half of Catholic school. I'm sure if I would have gone longer, you know, I probably would have seen all of these, but hadn't seen it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it gets by a lot on his charm. Yes. Uh, there are a lot of sort of minor characters who you feel are more living and breathing than they would be in another film. Mm-hmm. I think the movie really succeeds on Barry Fitzgerald, who I believe is the only actor ever to be nominated for supporting actor and lead actor for the same performance. Uh, yes. I read that. It was so crazy. And, um, and he's always been sort of a favorite of mine, strangely uh, mostly from, and then there were none, the Renee Claire version of um, Agatha Christie's 10 little Indians. Have you ever seen that version? 
Uh, it's from 1940. And then no, there were, I haven't seen that one. No, it's Barry Fitzgerald and Walter Houston and uh, the woman who uh, swearing up her name, who was in uh, Rebecca um, and played Mrs. Danvers. Um, oh, and, I can see her, and I don't know her name, but yeah. Anyway, it's 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 my favorite Agatha Christie um, film. Okay. Uh, over. Death on the Nile and Murder on the Express, which are awfully good, but yeah. uh, it has a lot of the Renee Claire charm. Barry Fitzgerald is awfully good in it. And he's even in like this weird role where he's way overcast in How Green Was My Valley. Uh, Barry Fitzgerald just sort of shows up and he's just um, a delight. So, uh, so I think this movie kind of um, thrives on their relationship, which a lot like that Thomas Mitchell Beulah Bondi scene is about people trying to do the right thing, even if they're in conflict. And uh, this, I remember the first time I watched it, the, the scene where Barry Fitzgerald kind of realizes that Bing Crosby, who he has so far thought is his assistant is actually his superior uh, and his sort of going with it and being okay was uh like I remember that was the first thing that when I first saw it going my way that kind of woke me up of like, Oh, this is yeah. so much better than it yeah. should be. And then the, the, the closing of, of there's something else to say about how McCary can set things up and then pay them off because how subtly he sets up the Barry Fitzgerald has a mother in Ireland in going my way. Beautiful. And, and then, then the end just, Oh, and brings Crying. it back. Which, My goodness. Yes. If you don't have tears at the end, you might need to check for a heart basically. But uh, in that, in the era, right after going my way, James Agee wrote about it. And he said, it points the way to the great films when Hollywood becomes aware of the richness and delight of human character for its own sake. He also said he appreciated that so much attention was given to the details of human types and so little attention to plot, which is kind of a McCary thing. He's, as we've been talking about, more interested in reactions and behavior. Uh, when he was recounting this film to Cahir de Cinema, he said a cardinal called them gently disrespectful because he said that, you know, it wasn't too religious, but they were gently disrespectful. The style of storytelling with the incidents, he actually brought on board one of the writers from the Laurel and Hardy days to work mm -hmm. on this movie. And he said um, he liked film storytelling with incidents, where one incident seems like just something that is happening, but it has great impact that we're going to see down the road. It can succeed and provoke other incidents in the story. He called this the ineluctability of incidents. He had a name for it. And his favorite scene with this film was the one where Bing Crosby is reunited with an old lover and she finds out that he's a priest. And it's another one where you're watching the movie, just as the scene you were talking about with Barry Fitzgerald, where you realize, oh, this isn't just Bing singing with a bunch of kids. Like, this is a love story or about adults who have lived a life. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's really moving. Um, a few things. First, I can't believe you. James Agee is a good friend of mine. And I can't believe you found a James. A no, he's long dead. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Did he know your grandpa, though? We got to He didn't it. know. No, oh, or, or sleep with anybody I've ever been uh, married wow. to. Um, okay. So there's uh, so there's that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention was there is something 
that he does, especially in Awful Truth, but in this and some of the other things, which are sort of like he's getting back, getting by the Hayes Code. He's doing things that are a little risque, but not in that sort of like, I guess, Lubitschian, like naughty way. Yeah. Like, the, the the couple in Awful Truth are cheating on each other. Oh, and, yeah. And do not pay a moral price for it or Mm-mm. you know it, it's not a uh it it's just sort of out there and it's not it's neither presented sort of like as a, um in a european their sophisticates but just it's, it's sort of just there that being as a priest had a sexual history is um yeah kind of is is uh uh, he just sort of puts it out there. And it, so it, it neither feels like um, the kid in the back of the class sneaking one by. It's just sort of, uh, uh, it's honest. Um, yeah, well, these were about human beings first. My childhood best friend, Paul, actually became a priest. No and shit. so, yeah. So uh, growing up, you know, he, he dated and, you know, lived a life. And then was thinking of entering the seminary and did. And yeah, he's a Catholic priest now. Yep. Um, I feel like I had something else. Oh, the other, the only other thing I'll say about going my way is it's great to see that William Frawley always looks 60. Uh, <laughs> but before he was Fred Mertz, he was, <laughs> he was always that old. Um, and uh, so that I've actually not seen Bells of St. Mary's for a while. I checked that out when I first checked that out, I was sort of high on McCary and high on going my way. And it was, and it felt like a disappointment to me. It was, it was a massive hit for him. Like he, he did. It was. Yeah. He won best picture and director in 44 and then came right back and was nominated for both in 45 for bells of St. Mary's. And they were, they were both, I think the, like the number one movie of their year. Yep. Um, These were extremely successful and they still are. They adjusted them for gross. Uh, When James Harvey wrote the book, Romantic Comedy, he was looking up the data for this. And he said that as of the publication of the book, Going My Way was the fourth most successful comedy ever made. And it was between Animal House and American Graffiti. Bells of St. Mary's was number seven. Okay. Yeah. Um, My Son John is a sort of fascinating watch um, for a couple of reasons. (laughs) And it's uh, the the story. I think Helen Hayes hadn't been on screen in 10 years or something. So it was sort of her comeback movie, but the movie should be called like my son is a communist. It's, it's um, fully in that era of, of uh, I'm sure he's just named names, but it's, it's an anti-communist propaganda in which a Midwestern mother of grown sons realizes that her pride and joy who works at the state department, Robert Walker uh, is secretly a communist. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so just on that pitch, you'd go, Oh God, this thing's going to be insufferable. And the first hour, there's so many moments with Helen A's that are crackling and funny and human. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the first time I watched it, I thought, uh, I thought this is actually like a hidden gem that excitement, yeah. like something that people haven't talked about or, um, and what happened was 
is halfway through shooting the movie, Robert Walker died. The actor. That's right. Yes. And if you, if for those who don't know the story, he had, uh, 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 Selznick had basically come in and broken up his marriage by stealing Jennifer Jones from him. Um, yep. and Robert Walker had all sorts of psychological mm-hmm. duress from that possibly pre-existing, uh, and then died uh, largely because of, I think his psychiatrist, um, um, malpractice or okay. it's, yeah. just, I think he was, I can't remember if he was given a shot or whatever, but he had a bad reaction to it and died. Um, uh, by tragic. the way, as a kicker to that, a, a few years later, uh, Selznick and Jennifer Jones are now married, raising the son that, uh, she had with Robert Walker, who's having psychological problems mm-hmm. for obviously. And who do they send him to see? The same psychiatrist who killed. Holy him. shit! Why would they do that? Wow! Because <laughs> Hollywood is nuts. Um, <laughs> anyway. uh, so that's a an aside, but As, yeah, putting but that aside. Watching this movie is fascinating <laughs> because then he has a McCary has a problem of how do I finish this movie if Robert Walker is dead? And I don't know what the original rest of the movie is supposed to be, but it becomes a s- number of scenes, mostly with Helen A's, but quite often she gets on the phone and starts talking and then you cut to a shot of Robert Walker like in Grand Central Station where you see he's in a phone booth you don't hear anything he's saying but they like they either got b-roll footage from another sure or from that they had done or from another movie and so they there it becomes this piece together weird story of her figuring something mm. out can't have the other major character say anything and resolves in a third act chase where the FBI is chasing Robert Walker in a car and the car wipes out and he's dying and you cut to, and you, they use scenes <laughs> clips from strangers on a tray train. I heard about yeah. that. Yeah. Cause Bruno Hitchcock was, was a friend. Yeah. And so they retrofit lines from Bruno to make sense in this context, simply so they can sort of finish the movie. So it's, it's a fascinating, literally like car crash to watch. Because mm-hmm. it's like there's there's a lot of quality in there, and then it's just like, oh my god, this is bananas. Um, yeah. And oh. uh, so that happened, and you know, the rest of his career, he has a, a return oh. to glory yeah. with an affair to remember, sort of uh, his remake. But the rest of his stuff, I've I've never bothered with Rally Around the Flag Boys or Satan Never Sleeps, which is supposed to be pretty bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, the screenwriter of my son, John, said that, you know, the lines that were coming out of people's mouths, I mean, which is true for McCary, scripts were kind of like, you know, a suggestion, basically, or bits and pieces, and he would rewrite things on paper, do the thing we talked about with the piano. But the screenwriter said that Leo McCary was a brilliant man who let communism absolutely drive him crazy. He actually went crazy. And he talked about... uh, that that was my son, John, which was um, a shock to even him. And he was known as uh, James Harvey, I think, called him uh, one of the champion red baiters and champion of the blacklist. So even right. he thought he was going too far. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, too bad. Coming back final time to my grandfather, I have no idea, like that, that big scene at the DGA where I think, uh, 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 who am I thinking of? Um, <laughs> Cecil B. DeMille is trying to get everybody to take a pledge okay. to be against uh, communism. Oh, wow. and, and John Ford, who's a fairly right wing guy, says, stands up and says, fuck this. 
Like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not given a pledge. And I've always sort of been curious. I wonder where my grandfather, like, I, I have no yeah. idea any of his politics, but I, uh, it's one of those things you look back and I wonder how my family endured that. Um, That's interesting. And I, yeah, John Ford, actually, in the, I think it was the essay for Make Way for Tomorrow that was included in the Criterion disc, the beginning, it talks about John Ford on D-Day being inspired by going my way of all things, the title, especially, he said it made him think about why they were there and what they were doing on D-Day. And so that's kind of a tie between Ford and McCary, I guess. Well, I was going to say before we wrap up here, are there any films that you want to recommend that we didn't get to? I know we talked about Ruggles of Red Gap or other filmmakers from this era that kind of have a sensibility, other movies that you could recommend people check out. The funny thing was I, I was thinking about other movies that have that same feeling of, you know, everybody's pretty good. Um, yeah. And and so let's take just two minutes and talk about that because it it's something that is, uh, that I would kind of hope to aspire to. Uh, I don't think there's anything I've worked on that sort of like does that. Um, meaning um, they're... Uh, I haven't I haven't done anything that good yet, but um, uh, and th- these are weird examples. But Close Encounters of the Third Kind has appreciated for me because it's a thriller about everybody trying to do something that's good. Meaning the oh, government is trying to. I love that they're they're the antagonist, but they are actually trying to make contact and uh, and Dreyfus, you know, goes through hell to make sure that he's not crazy. And mm. he and Truffaut sort of have this connection and it's um, and, and so at the core of it is, is sort of, a, there's a beneficent um, center. Yeah. Uh, so I like that. Um, the straight story, David Lynch's best beautiful Lynch movie, which beautiful film. guts me every time at the end. I it know. Was, oh, everybody it's like bringing the mom over to... from Ireland and going my way. If you're not crying, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, even a stone. I know I'm doing it. <laughs> Let's do well. Doing it like yeah. burden. I don't know. Um. Anyway, so so that's another movie where everybody's good. Um, there's a movie. Uh, here's my obscure reference for the day, or somewhat obscure. A movie I really like called uh, A Big Hand for the Little Lady. Have you ever heard of this? Yes, you recommended that to me, but I I saw it years ago. I need to rewatch it though. Um, it is a movie to not read about or listen to anything. All I'll say is there's something about the third act where you feel like, oh, everybody's better off because of this. Even oh. even people who are sort of like uh, are not likable at the beginning have are a better person for the sake of for, the movie. Yeah, um, oh, that's cool. I'm trying to think if there's another uh, movie that. Um, uh, that succeeds at this that I really uh, love. Um, anything come to your mind? Or I was thinking James L. Brooks movies. You mentioned yeah. some of those I, earlier. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's sort of in broadcast news specifically. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Major characters are sort of opposed to each other. I, I mean, there are a couple of character executives who are kind of morally, dicks. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I know I had written down or thought of a another title is like oh yeah that's a great example of that and i'm completely um, oh you're fine you gave some great uh, examples no um 
I really want to thank you. I so appreciate you for doing this. It was a real pleasure. I learned so much about your grandfather and this was really cool. Now I got to track down some of these movies you mentioned, but with your caveats that, you know, they're a little flawed. The one, I mean, uh, uh, Sons of the Desert is pretty good. Um, he, oh, yeah. how would actually, sorry, he directed a movie called uh, Roberta starring Irene Dunn. Oh, I love that movie. Are you kidding? I have it. So, so there's, there's another connection okay. uh, to the story. And there's a movie that um, kind of has some cult following called um, uh, The Moon's Our Home with uh, Henry Fonda. And I don't want to screw this up because it's it's his ex-wife who's either it's not Marina Sullivan or Margaret. Sullivan, it's yeah, it's whoever his ex-wife was. And and uh, it's sort of in the um, it's talked about. I think it was Bill Murray's like favorite screwball. I think he mentioned oh, it. Interesting. Um, OK. Uh, so, so I can, I can um, push that. Uh, and then my grandmother's movies, like, she makes an appearance maybe once a year on TCM somewhere in sort of the graveyard shift, but she, she worked with Cagney and Tracy and every other major, but then she retired pretty much right. I think uh, right after she got married to my grandfather, she was, she was out of there. Um, and uh uh, I will, since I can't promote anything else, I will promote, promote Music Man on on now yes. on way running uh, all year, starring my wife and Hugh Jackman. It's a it's a delight, and also keeping in theme a show in which everybody is a pretty good person ultimately yes. and is trying to even even if they're being sneaky or mendacious. Uh, yeah, they are there. There's a there's a goodness at the core of it, and, and so it's a. Um, uh, it's a blast, but also one of the great um, American musicals. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, Ted, thank you so much for doing this. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.